This is Ramdas here and now, and I'm Raghu Marcus. Welcome. Before I get into introducing this new episode, I want to tell everybody about this upcoming course that uh, we curated for Shift Network. If you remember last year, uh, exactly a year ago, we did one on with Ramdas on aging, and now we're doing one on awakening through difficult emotions. And uh, please do go to ramdas.org, go right to the top banner, and click over, and you can have access to this wonderful webinar Ramdas did a week ago uh, that uh, addressed this subject. It was called Freedom from Anger, Fear, and Separateness, and How to Transform Suffering and Befriend Your Difficult Emotions, which is, it's a... Uh, a lead-in to this four-week course where he talks about the different aspects of being able to uh, gain a new perspective around the difficult thoughts and emotions and suffering that we go through on a day-to-day basis and how to transform it. And, of course, Ramdas is a master of dealing with these day-to-day events in our lives and emotions and thoughts that... uh, Sometimes we chase way too much and get uh, a huge attachment to, and it causes a lot of suffering. So this is a free webinar that you can sign up for. And then in the webinar, Ramdas did this with Stephen Danan of Shift Network. It's really a, a, a beautiful dialogue. And uh, Stephen will tell you all about the different details that are contained in this course, not the least of which is for a weekly meditation. It's a four-week course. So every week you get a really wonderful guided meditation from Ramdas, which is not archival. It's from the last few years of from retreats that we've done in uh, in Maui with Ramdas. So you get to s- sit with him from where he is now, which is a, quite a beautiful space. So th- that's it. Uh, I just wanted to let everybody know that... Um, there's still time to sign up and to see the free webinar, and then perhaps if you're interested to join the course. Okay. This talk is from 1991, and I'm titling it Fear and the Journey of Awakening. And it's derived from a question Ramdas was asked about at a retreat about fear, that you get fear as you get closer to leaving behind separateness. And uh, really what we're talking about, of course, is getting on the path and, and you're doing the practices, you're, you're working with teachers, you're ma- you've maybe made some trips abroad to India or you've done some really intensive retreats and then something starts to happen. You actually start to get that feeling of unity get that feeling of connection to that place in us that is beyond um, the attachments and the desires uh, and the pull of of the worldly life. And sometimes uh, it happens in a very, very strong way. You get a very strong vibration, meditating, something like that. And there's a way in which we... We run from that because the idea of of that singular unity 
and being in that place where we realize we are completely connected with everything and everyone around us, there's a fear of the ego does not want to lose its grip of separateness. So uh, this is a, a the core um, topic that Ram Dass gets into in, in this uh, in this talk that he gave back then. Um, let's see. Well, when sometimes, and you've seen people, I'm sure, have known people who really get out there once they start doing practices and they become a little bit ill-prepared to deal with their daily lives. And uh, Ram Dass talks about how that's tr- treated as pathology here. Whereas in India, which has a context for altered states of consciousness, they respect these people and they nurture them. So it's, uh, it, it's amazing how, the, how different, of course, these cultures are and how that can affect us uh, doing the kind of work that, uh, that we want to do to get free. Um, let's see. We, we in the West, and this is addressing what we were just talking about, we in the West socialize the spiritual process, so it's not so scary. But it is very, very profound. At this point in the talk, actually, uh, and I had never heard this before, you know, and I've said this a million times, Jesus, I've listened to a million Ramdas talks, I've been at a lot of them, I've known him since the second time he went back to, or before that, before he even went back to India the second time, so it's been a, a lot of time, a lot of years, a lot of years, and I've never heard him um, read this letter you know he he in the course of his talks as many of you know he tells wonderful stories uh, he and he quotes he does a lot of quotes and reads different material that uh, he's picked up along the way and in this case it was a letter from swami vivekananda uh, to one of his devotees which i believe was a, an american woman it is i'll tell you if you don't do anything but just listen to the, Ramdas reading this Vivekananda. Vivekananda, by the way, uh, so this is uh, turn of the last century. He's one of the first uh, Eastern teachers to come to America. He was a a, uh, a devotee of Sri Ramakrishna, one of the great saints of India who lived uh, near Calcutta in Dakshineshwar. And uh, as I I just said it, and I'm going to say it again, this is worth the price of admission, just this letter. It is so fantastic. It's, it's all about him being completely honest with everything that he had been doing, his, the work, the teaching, his interactions with people. He saw where he was coming from that I place in each part of his life and, and just broke through. And then uh, it's it's a fascinating letter. So I'm I'm really happy to share this with everybody. And uh, and that leads to further discussion about. I think uh, I can't remember if I said that uh, when we were talking about the course and how all of us deal with very negative or disturbing emotions and thoughts and chase them and stick to them and 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 it it creates a lot of suffering in our lives 
there are a few people on the planet, probably very few at any one time, that are evolved and who have gone through that veil of the I and the attachment to self. And they're, they're completed. They're called realized beings. They no longer, they are not here as personalities anymore. They're not here for themselves. And at the same time, they're completely potent and effective in their, in their lives, in their world. But there's nobody there acting from a self-interested place. And they're acting out of collective karma rather than individual karma, which is a really interesting concept. Uh, they are acting out of an, the existential situation that simply elicits their response. And that's exactly my experience of Neem Karoli Baba back in, when I met him. I was like shocked. I could see that he wasn't acting out of any self at all. It was just what the situation required for someone to get what they needed to become free. I mean, it's just, it's staggering that... I mean, it gives you all the faith in, 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 the, in the world. The faith, not in the world, but you know what I mean, gives you total trust that the universe is intelligent. And certainly, uh, whether you believe in God or not, there are uh, people that have absolutely uh, are here and they are proof that there is a place to act from that is not of self-interest. Uh, and certainly Neem Karoli Baba was our example for that. Um, and there's some talk, Ram Dass talks about how the projection, you know, this culture that we come from is, is a formidable one to deal with in terms of how molded by it, you know, we are. Uh, it's... Another great, great uh, talk, uh, and I think the one thing, and this is at the very end, he talks about keeping at the edge of the mystery. In other words, as we go through this on the spiritual path, as we do all these practices, as stuff starts to happen to us, and fear arises, we don't run. We just stay in our place with enough trust and faith that we are being taken care of. At the same time, we are not going to be able to know in our minds what the reality be beyond our minds, beyond our emotions, beyond our egos. We're not going to know what that is in our heads. And, and I love, uh, Roshi Joan Halifax talks about it a lot, honoring the mystery. And Ram, in this case, Ramdas is keeping the edge of the mystery right there. Stay as close to that edge as you can. Uh, that's a terrific, terrific teaching and not easy at all because of dealing with fear. Back to the Course. There's some good stuff in that course I talked about at the beginning of the podcast, Awakening Through Difficult Emotion, around, and fear is certainly at the head of that list. So uh, it's a, a, a very worthy course to take if you, if you can, or at least uh, to, uh, you know, watch the free webinar. Um, 
that's it. Let's just do it. Oh, um, by the way, on this um, this file that I got, which has this talk, I found some mantra practice. It was actually Sri Ram J Ram J J Ram. So I am going to put that at the end. Just a few minutes. It'll be like a wonderful little meditation. Uh, for everybody to help get centered, okay? So look, uh, listen to the whole thing because I think you'll enjoy every bit of it and get a lot out of it. And then after uh, Ramdas's talk, we're just inserting a few minutes of this practice, which he did about 45 minutes of, and I don't think I have the nerve to put 45 minutes of mantra practice on a podcast. Well, here she goes. Fear and the journey of awakening from Ramdas is May of 1991. And this is Ramdas here and now, and we shall see you next week. Yesterday, the question was raised of um, about fear as one gets close to the edge of leaving behind one's separateness into the formless or into the all. And um, my um, suggestions have always been that that fear is to be honored. It's not something that you're trying to override it's telling you something about the nature of your dharma or your work at the moment. Um, because there are, in the journey of um, awakening, there are periods where the pull to immerse oneself into the ocean of unity gets so strong that one is pulled very strongly away from one's responsibilities, one's existing uh, efforts to work in the world. Now, in our culture, when that happens to people without them expecting it, it's treated often as pathology. And we say that person has flipped out. They don't have their ground. They don't know their zip code. They can't keep it together. They, they, they get emotionally erratic, They etc. In other cultures, um, in other cultures like in India, when somebody goes into those states, because they have a context that recognizes that often the person is dealing with vast amounts of energy and other ways of seeing reality that are, make it very difficult to stay grounded. They treat these people with great reverence and respect and take care of them and keep them in a spiritual context till they get through that. Now, it's a peculiar thing when you think of the spiritual journey because most of the time 
we are so grounded that we're trying to get out of it. And then you start to get out of it, and then there's a period where you start to lose it and you, don't, you can't get back. And that's an interesting period. And I don't want to underestimate it or underplay it. It doesn't mean one should be frightened in anticipation of it. But when you meet the fear that comes, like if you're doing deep meditation practice, like I was telling you of doing two months of that following the breath, there are times in that when there is incredible fear, when the whole universe of form starts to dissolve and you're frightened. And you go to the teacher and the teacher senses where the fear is and how to work with it. The, we, have, we hold ourselves in so tightly to being efficient, effective, responsible, good, that it's extremely hard to deal with these kinds of states. And yet here we are attempting to awaken, and at the same moment, if we awaken too far, we start to lose our ground and uh, our health insurance goes unpaid and so on. So, this is something each of us has to deal with. And what that fear is, is reminding you that it's not yet time. It's like those people that have out-of-body experiences, where they go out of their body, like in a near-death experience, is a good example. Near-death experience, and they go and they meet all their mishpacha that have died before them. They meet all the, you know, their old friends and spiritual mentors. And they're floating out there, and it's beautiful. And then they say, go back, you haven't finished your work. Or they come to a fence, and they got to go back. Or suddenly they see the, the doctor pressing on their heart, pulling them back or something. And they realize it's, it's come back. And they often come back very depressed because it was so great. And what am I doing here? You know, like, how, what a horrible thing. And uh, you've got to realize that this is not nothing. We have, uh, we've, we in the West socialize the spiritual process to make it as non-scary as possible. But it is profound. I'd like to read you, um, this is a letter. Uh, I suppose most of you have heard of somebody named Swami Vivekananda. He was the, um, probably the chief disciple of, of Ramakrishna, who was a great, great Indian saint. And Vivekananda came to the West and he did, uh, he, he did a tremendous amount of teaching at a time when Eastern philosophy and mysticism was really not very much known in the West. But he came and he had a lot of charisma and he was, uh, he was a very good teacher and he's written some extremely lucid books enunciating different forms of yoga. And he died very young, actually. And this is about eight years before he died. And it's a letter he wrote to Miss Josephine McLeod. Uh, here he was connected to Ramakrishna, who was a great, great devotional yogi. Great devotional yogi. He said, after all, Joe, I'm only a boy who used to listen with rapt wonderment to the wonderful words of Ramakrishna under the banyan tree at Dakshineshwar. That is my true nature. Doing good and so forth are all superimpositions. 
Now I again hear the voice, the same old voice thrilling my soul. Bonds are breaking, love dying, work becoming tasteless. The glamour is off life. Yes, I come. Nirvana is before me. I feel it at times, the same infinite ocean of peace without a ripple, a breath. Since the beginning of this year, I've not dictated anything, you know that. I am drifting again in the warm heart of the river. I dare not make a splash with my hands or feet for fear of breaking the wonderful stillness that makes you feel sure the world is an illusion. Behind my work was ambition. Behind my love was personality. Behind my purity was fear. Behind my guidance, the thirst of power. Now they're vanishing and I drift. I come, mother, a spectator, no more an actor. Things are seen and felt like shadows. Now it's interesting, here was a person that we in the West looked at and said, look at all he accomplished. And here he is very honestly sharing the places from which he accomplished all that. And yet there are beings who go through that stage and are completed. He wasn't a completed being. He's still on the journey there. There are beings that go through that, and then they really aren't here as personalities, and yet they are extremely potent, effective entities in the world. But there's nobody there. And then they are, in a sense, acting out of collective karma rather than individual karma. They're acting out of the existential situation that elicits their response rather than I want to do it or I need to do it or I desire to do it. And in a way, we in the West, um, I'll read you one more quote. This is a, a quote from Kabir, the poet, Sufi poet. He said, dancing is no longer for me. The vessel of desires is broken. Parts enough have I played. God's name alone I now have. By Ram's grace, I have found my full reward. Now, what is the... Um, We are in a, you and I are living in a culture in which the, the context is so strong that it's very hard to get perspective about it because it's so 
built into us. It's so permeated our very existence. And it has to do with achieving. It has to do with time. It has to do with individuality. It has to do with uh, responsibility. It has to do with the meaning of life. And many of you, through psychedelics or through trauma or through near-death experiences or through going to the moon or whatever, flipped out of that. And for one moment, you saw it as if from afar and you were free of it. It's like climbing in an airplane out of the atmosphere, out of the, the uh, smog. And you saw the way in which you have been molded by the culture you've grown up in. And that memory, that memory, Whitman says, what I saw for the rest of my life will be the song I will try to sing. That memory. And I feel at times how we in the West trivialize the spiritual journey in order to make it socially comfortable for us. And in the, in the process when we do that, we take away the potential of it because it scares us too much, because it's too heretical, because it's too... Um, it's anti-everything, it's anti-social, it's anti... it's not good. Spiritual journey isn't good. It's beyond good. It's beyond good and evil. It's free. And when you say you're beyond law, people get frightened. You mean you're trying to get beyond law? Yeah. Yeah, so that the law can come out of me. Like all of the practices in, it, it's as if <laughs> different practices are designed for people of different levels of evolution. Like take all of the, the purification techniques like shila in Buddhism or uh, yama and niyama in, in Hinduism or uh, the Ten Commandments things like that. Those are all designed, now I'm talking from a spiritual perspective, those are all designed for unawakened people to keep them from creating bad karma, from creating too much karma for themselves. That's really what it's about, until such time as they awaken, when they turn into a mystic. And then those things, see like when you say, don't steal, you can hear it, don't steal. I mean, it's like your parents saying, don't steal. And if you steal, all hell's going to break. You're going to go to hell or whatever's going to happen. As you get more conscious, you realize you're part of a collective awareness. And when, you and when people steal, it increases paranoia and separateness. And it's in your total body. And you would, you'd be an idiot to steal. As you get more conscious, you realize you're part of a collective awareness, and when, you and when people steal, it increases paranoia and separateness, and it's in your total body, and you would, you'd be an idiot to steal. I mean, you don't want to live in the hell realm you create when you steal, so, and you realize the, the karmic nature of stealing. So that an act which is first done out of um, fear is later done out of, of course I'll do it. It's no big deal, of course I'll do it. 
It's like manipulating other people as objects to bring about your goals because you're so identified with your desires. You get to the point where to get a desire fulfilled that involves exploiting other people in a way that leaves them feeling used and separate isn't worth it to you. It just isn't worth it. It's not good enough. It's not worth having the desire. The desire isn't interesting enough if it involves all that. Now, let's assume that most of us are not totally unawakened. We are a little awakened, probably. It's about the best I can say for us. Yeah. Most of us are not feeling the pull. What happens is the further you awaken, the more the pull to be free gets stronger and stronger. The more it gets stronger and stronger, the less relevant is all the stuff of the world. That's what Vivekananda is talking about. And you can see, where are you in that? See, you get to the point where you weren't awakened, you were just plodding along, suffering, getting pleasure, suffering, pleasure, suffering. Okay. Looking this way. And then something made you look that way, and you saw that it was possible that you had something else going here, that you were somebody other than you thought you were. So now you're here, and this is real, but you start to reach up. Now, in, forget up. I mean, up is, of course, a metaphor. In, down, out. Here. Uh, you start to... Uh, it's the problem with this business. <laughs> but you start to reach, and uh, but you're reaching. Your the place you're reaching from is the physical, psychological, social plane. That's where your reality is. I mean, even somebody as sophisticated as Carl Jung, and uh, I would, I would be uh, rather uh, presumptuous to uh, to judge Carl Jung. Having said that, however, <laughs> in Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, Jung describes a moment where he's gone out into these other realms, and then he, he's back in his library, and he says, I was so happy to be back, back in my library, back in myself again. Now that's the clue right there. It shows where you're standing, where your reference point is, where's reality for you. Now as the evolution goes on, that shifts until pretty soon the free being, oh, that, well, you go from standing here, leaping up and then falling back like a bird that can't quite fly. It's like I remember going to, <laughs> not supposed to say these things, going to Lincoln, the opening of Lincoln Center in New York when uh, uh, um, no, the ballet, Yuryev, uh, uh, Yuryev um, yeah, was uh, dancing. And we sat in the loges looking down and I took uh, some LSD and what it all turned into was this species of bird that kept leaping up and falling and leaping up and falling and leaping up and falling. And I thought, 
just a few more evolutionary rounds and it'll make it, you know? And <laughs> that's called ballet. So, uh, <laughs> um, now, uh, but that's sort of where we are. We're, we're like doing this and we're making little attempts. As the process works, everything changes because you're no longer standing here going there. You start to stand, you start to stand out there looking back. And then everything is quite different. And then ultimately you hear the statement, there is nowhere to stand. That you can't stand here and you can't stand not here. It's what when the Tibetans say nirvana and samsara are one, they say to call it form, it's the form that's formless. It's the formless that is form. It's, it's the place where the paradoxes come together. And this is absolutely to realize that you are stand that anywhere you're standing is short of what the game is. You're not free as long as you think you're standing somewhere, as long as you're somebody standing somewhere. Now imagine just what it feels like. I mean, I play with the edge of it, of who am I? I'm nobody. I don't know what I am. I'm a whole set of projections. I'm, a, a, an, I'm an unfolding karmic predicament. I'm a, I'm a you know, <laughs> I mean, how do I deal with this? It's, it's extraordinary and I keep, I, most of the time, I am still so uh, caught in one desire or another that it seems real until somebody comes along and helps me out. It might be a book, it might be a quote, it might be a friend, it might be a meditation, it might be whatever, it might be a giggling picture of my guru that says, Boy, you're really caught in that one, aren't you? You really think you're real, don't you? And there's this process of slowly, slowly realizing that you are free, that you don't have to be. I mean, everybody always asks, what will you be when you grow up? And the realization, you won't, so it isn't. You know, <laughs> it isn't relevant and that you don't have to define yourself. You're continually in a process of growth and evolution. Any label you put on yourself is such a bad trip you're laying on yourself, no matter how good it is. You know, I go to borders when I'm crossing borders and they say, write down, what is it, you know, what is your profession? I don't know, what's my profession? You put down mystic, you don't get into the country. <laughs> put blank, you know, no religion, you know. So you put author, lecturer, but what is it? I watch, like when I work with dying people, you know, I come in and there was this woman here in um, Marin. She was a lawyer and she was dying of cancer. Some of you may have known her. And she had three children. She was a young woman. And I, they asked me to go and see her because I'm, you know, one of the Mr. Deaths, me and, me and Stephen Levine. And, so I came and I drove on the freeway. It was Christmas Day and I came in and the family acted like Santa Claus had just come, you know. Oh, you've come, wonderful, she's upstairs. And I noticed soon I had my coat off that I was propelled upstairs and into this room was this woman who 
who can't speak and who's right at the edge of death. And I'm still on the freeway. I mean, I'm, you know. So I sit down and I start to do good, which is what you do, you know. You, yes, you know, you go into your, I'm Mr. Death, I'll be helpful and I'll, you know, help you die. And it took me about, you know, five or six minutes of, before I looked into her eyes and I realized she was just waiting for me to finish my routine. She was way beyond that. I was so busy being somebody doing something that I couldn't even hear her. And then slowly I quieted down and quieted down and we just went out together until who's dying and who isn't dying and who's helping who and what is all this about, what nonsense. And then at that moment, then you begin to see how when you're free of standing anywhere, you become an environment for someone else. Let, let me put it the other way. When you're standing somewhere, you constantly need to use the world to reinforce the reality of where you're standing. Like if you're a therapist, you need a patient. <laughs> really hard to be a therapist without a patient. I mean, you've seen them. They walk around looking for patients all the time. <clears throat> and it's, it's true of any role, any single role you're in, you always need the complementarity or the symbiosis or whatever it is to make it real. You constantly have to do that. So you're constantly, the minute you define yourself as something, you're constantly manipulating the universe to reinforce the reality of that. I'm a beautiful woman, I'm an aging man, whatever it is. But if you're standing nowhere, and you don't need to be anywhere, then you can be in this position of listening. And you can allow people to do their projections without you thumbing through their projections to find out which one you need. So that you listen and you create an environment for other human beings with your mind that allows them to be who they need to be. You're not really my child, you're another soul. Stop acting like my child. <laughs> what do you think, you're my mother? Yeah. <laughs> Come on, you've milked that as hard as you can, let's go. I mean, you can feel, you can feel how you really can't lay trips on people about their need for role, but when you are an environment that isn't caught in yours, you are a space in which if another person wanted to come up for air out of their roles, out of their identity with anything, there's nothing in you that'll jam them back down in. I mean, I think back with horror to the way in which I was a psychotherapist. I was so needful as a therapist. I needed to have patience. I needed them to need me. Oh, God, they had to need me. If they started to stop needing me, I got very punitive. It didn't get cured around me. Uh, you were always about to get cured, and you were always very appreciative of how I was helping you. Yeah, I mean, people knew their role. They knew their part if they wanted to stay close to me. And I was so afraid of being a patient myself that, I mean, we had to clearly define who sat on which side of the desk. I mean, it was not a simple thing. It wasn't like, 
course, that was 30 years ago. Things are different now. But as you extricate yourself from these identities, from these roles, you learn how to wear roles, to use them, to function within them. You and I have to meet through role. Humans have to meet through roles. The question is, how, who's caught in what? How you can be in a role and not of it. How you can be in the role. Like I'm lecturing in your audience. But you don't have to be busy being an audience. I'm an audience. Well, I'm a speaker. I'm not speaking, you're not audience. We're just beings being together, and it just happens the vehicle for us being together is there's speaking, and there's listening. The minute you become the listener, you make me the speaker. The minute you identify with your role, you make me an object. The minute you don't identify with your role and I don't identify with my role, how many of us are there anyway? There's only one of it. There's one of it playing with these different forms. So that as you get into meditative practice, you begin to examine what roles you're really caught in needing. and you begin to feel where the aversions and the attractions are in your own mind. That's the whole process of meditation, is to extricate yourself from these clingy things that are models and habits of thought and definitions until you, they come very, very lightly. If I'm representing the Seva Foundation, I am a foundation representative. But when I'm lying around in the hot tub, I'm not a foundation representative. I'm somebody lying in the hot tub. And I move from moment to moment to moment. And I, Gandhi gave that, that incredible, um, that little story that I've told so many times. It's so, it's so powerful for us in this culture when he said, when he was leading the mar uh, march, it wasn't the salt march, it was another march, and he saw there was going to be violence, and he said he was going to stop the march, and the people, his lieutenants said, you can't do this, Gandhiji. People left their jobs to follow you. There's thousands of people involved. And he said, God is absolute truth. I am a human. I only know relative truth, and my understanding of truth changes from day to day, and my commitment must be to truth, not to consistency. Now, you just look at your life and ask, how much is your commitment to consistency and not truth? How much in order to make it all run smooth are you just who everybody expects you to be all the time? How consistent are we? How afraid are we of inconsistency? Now, to, to not be consistent, let me see, to be truthful, does it mean to be appear inconsistent? The answer is no, because once you know you're nobody, then you can be anybody. Then you can be consistent all the time, because it doesn't matter to you. But as long as you think you're somebody and you're consistent, you're trapped. Is this too weird?
So it's really, it's why I call that the spiritual journey is really going into nobody training. You know, uh, wavy, uh, wavy gravy, uh, a dear and wise being who's on the SAVA board. You know, for a number of years, he's run a campaign each election of nobody for president because nobody can solve our economic problems and, uh, and the essence statement of it is nobody cares. <laughs> and there's so many levels of double entendre in that, in that statement because somebody always wants what they need in order to preserve their somebodyness. And in fact, nobody does care. <laughs> Took me a long time to realize that. So what I'm experiencing is the less I define myself, the more available I am to other human beings. The less I am living within the box of my self-definition that constantly uses the universe to reassure me of who I am. And the more flexible I am so that am I a student or am I a teacher? Am I a child or am I old? There is a quality Let me start another one. Once once I understand what I've just been saying, and I'm just beginning to understand it myself, then my actions every day, when I meditate or contemplate or reflect back on the day that I've just completed, or sit down and, because it's, it's really useful, I'll tell you, it's useful to have some quiet alone time not and grab a television or grab a book or grab a newspaper, just sit. If you want to sit under a tree, fine. If you want to take a walk, fine. Just some quiet time where you digest your life experiences a little bit. Because you're so busy having them and they're not quite digested and then you go on and collect more because we're so addicted to um, double jeopardy. Oh, jeopardy. <laughs> to more adrenaline rushes before we've even digested what we've got. And you run around like, like ill-digested stuff in your intestines all the time, the intestines of the mind. And sometimes when you quiet down, like I look back over a day and I see how many times I got caught in being somebody. Because you may be going along nobody, nobodying your way down the street and somebody comes along and they have such a clear projection of who you are and you fall right into it. You buy right in. And what I do is when I walk around people and they project onto me, which their projections are coming out of their desire systems. That's not coming out of anything else. I try on the projection and see how it feels. 
and sometimes I grow from it, and sometimes it's irrelevant, and I just, it just goes by me, and it doesn't make any difference, and sometimes I work with it. I was with a group of um, uh, Chicano-Latino um, folks who were, we were talking about, about sharing each other's pain, and they were really uh, very critical of me for being, um, having sort of unconscious racism. And I could see who they thought I was, and I could feel that as I put that on, okay, that's who I am, I'm an unconscious racist. I felt what that felt like, and I saw that there were places in there that were true. That was very useful for me, to find those places in me that had not examined these things and had not let go of them. And then a lot of it was clearly just the projection that came out of their pain. And all I did was just try it on and feel it and work with it and then come back and say, well, behind Latino, Chicano, and behind Anglo, and behind all that, here we are. Now, what you find is that most people are carrying their history so heavily on their backs, their child abuse, their childhood abuse, their ethnic uh, oppression, their something, that they can't come up for air. They're too busy being somebody, the result of all that. And I watched in my own, over these past 25 years, how my personal history started to disappear. How who I was was less interesting. And I, I watched, there was a moment, uh, oh, this was 10 years ago, when I decided, I, I've told the story, but I was, I, I, I moved a lot because I'm a, a wanderer. It's, it's a sect. I mean, I'm a legitimate wanderer. I'm not just an irresponsible wanderer. And, um, but I'm a Western wanderer. I'm not, I don't have a begging bowl and a loincloth. I have, uh, you know, a car and a, then I usually have a U-Haul truck following me that has all my boxes of who I am. You know, and now and then I look in the mirror and I see this huge truck following me and I think, and you know, the funny thing is it's all in boxes and they're all sealed. I never open the boxes, but I put them in the basement or the garage and then there's my somebodyness. And I figure, you know, you take photographs and old love letters and things like that, because later you'll want to go back. And then I thought, why will I want to go back? When will I want to go back? Am I going to run out of the moment? You know? And I saw that I was protecting my history, this kind of sentimental glop thing that I was kind of wallowing in. And so I said to everybody, we'll have a big fire and we will burn my history. So we had this, well, the first night I put it all out of the trash. Then I found in the middle of the night I was out going through, <laughs> I woke up thinking, oh my God, I'll never see that picture again. And I went out and had to go through, you know. So I decided, no, I have to burn it. So I started to burn stuff, and then I noticed that I was, I was building a little pile on the side, <laughs> like a pictures of my guru. You, you're gonna burn the pictures of your guru? You think that's wise? 
And I can feel, I mean, I still have boxes. The new boxes are collected now. I gotta have another fire. It's so, uh, it's so subtle to watch this stuff and to watch the stages one goes through where one is trying constantly to be somebody in the world and at the same moment integrate the awakening that's happening into that somebodyness and how as time goes on, and partly it's my age, I mean, as I get older, the whole somebodyness is less interesting to me. And then I start to find myself floating out more. And it's interesting that in India, they have articulated the stages of life so clearly as the ashramas, so that from zero to 20, you're a student, from 20 to 40, you're a householder, and your job is to make money and to support people and to raise your family. And then 40 to 60, you make pilgrimages and you start to do spiritual practices as well as phasing out your business and turning it over to your children. And then at 60, you become a sannyas. You just give up everything and you're a free wanderer. Well, I was 60 a month ago. Now what? I mean, I love my MG. <laughs> Could I be a sannyas with an MG? It's orange. <laughs> I guess I, I, I didn't know any of this was going to be what we were going to talk about this morning. Um, but it just strikes me that I think we have to give ourselves the benefit of being conscious of not trivializing the spiritual journey, not reducing it down to something that we're all extremely comfortable with, but keeping the edge of mystery and the edge of the potential of it and the edge that it all can be very different. I think many of us have given up hope that it can be different, and we're just trying to socialize spirituality into our lot in life. And what I experience is that a lot of the fear people have when they meditate or when they do practices is because they get to the edge of that where they have to examine that place again. And my, my invitation is to stay as close to that edge as you can.
This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.